Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. We also cover craft, the agent hunt, query trenches, publishing industry, marketing, and more. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and make sure to visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog for additional interviews, query critiques, and more as well as full transcriptions of each podcast episode at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. And don't forget to check out the Writer Writer Pants on Fire Facebook page. Give me feedback, suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, and let me know if there's someone you would love to see as a guest. If you have specific questions, feel free to post them on the page and I will answer them on the podcast. This summer, I'm adding a co-host, fellow author Kate Carius Quinn. We'll be doing a series that focuses on hybrid and indie authors. If you're thinking of going the self-pub route, we've got authors who found success with six-figure sales, as well as authors who are just starting out on the road to indie publishing. Learn from them. Learn with us. Today's guest is David Gochran. He is the author of the historical adventures Liberty Boy, Mercenary, and A Storm Hits Valparaiso and has helped thousands of authors to self-publish their work via his workshops, blog, and books, such as Let's Get Digital, Let's Get Visible, Amazon Decoded, Strangers to Superfans, BookBub Ads Expert, and Following. In May 2020, he was one of the recipients of the Kate Wilhelm Solstice Award from the SFWA, whose president said, David has been doing yeoman's work for years, alerting indie writers about predatory schemes and warning them about changes in independent publishing. When Skylar gets a glimpse of her future and she's with her arch enemy Truman, as in romantically with him, she cannot let that happen. Trying to change the future means complicating the present, in, now, and when. A romantic dramedy with a sci-fi twist by Sarah Bennett Wheeler. On sale now. So I know that you have a lot of information that you put out into the world for other uh, indie authors. And Kate is always forwarding your newsletter to me and saying, check this out. David said this, David said that. And I'm like, okay, cool. So could you just talk a little bit about how you ended up in the indie publishing world at all. Yeah, sure. So I started writing seriously, like writing with the aim of actually getting something published somewhere about maybe 10, 11, 12 years ago, something like that. Because back then, the self-publishing wasn't really a viable option, um, at least mm-hmm. not in 2008, 2009. I think there was a handful of, of pioneering romance authors that were starting to do well out of it, but that news hadn't really reached me. I was still under the impression that self-publishing was like the last refuge of the scoundrel, you know, or something that mm-hmm. would irreparably damage your career. Um, so I was I was querying agents. Um, I think I queried nearly every agent out there um, with a book that probably wasn't fully cooked either. Um, so rather inevitably, I got a whole bunch of rejections. But towards the end of the process, you know, I started getting, you know, non-form rejections where they actually, you know, put your name in the email and the title mm-hmm. of could, these little tea leaves that you're reading, you know, looking for <sighs> progress anywhere. Um, and then an agent actually told me he wanted to represent me. 
um, I remember I remember getting the email. I think it was um, it was just before Christmas, and this agent said that he'd read my book and everyone in the office had read the book and they loved it and and they wanted me to be their next author. You know, so obviously I was excited. The last line of the email, he said something like, um, "We're just about to close for the Christmas holidays, so please give my office a call when we get back when we reopen in January." And he gave some date, which was like three weeks away or something. So I was just on, on tenterhooks the whole time. Well, actually, I wasn't on tenterhooks the whole time. I assumed that I'd made it as a writer. So I, I went, <laughs> you know, during the Christmas uh, holidays, telling everyone that I was, about, I was going to be the next big thing and, and spending all the advance money in my head. And then in January, when I made contact with the agent again, um, he just changed his mind. He wasn't interested anymore. Um, I don't know Ugh. why. Um, wow. maybe he read it a second time and, and saw there was issues there that maybe were trickier to address or maybe he took on something else in the same niche, you know, or maybe he got a book from a, an existing client in the same niche and didn't want to go out to the same editors with, with a similar book. Um, I don't know. There can be lots and lots of reasons for this kind of thing. He and didn't give an excuse or like, no, he basically, he, he basically ghosted me. He didn't, he didn't return my call. He just sent me, I think his assistant sent me a one-line email saying he's no longer interested. It was all very weird, you know? Um, yeah. And this was before I had any kind of public life or, or you know, was engaging in various spats on Twitter or anything like that. So it, it, it couldn't have been something like that. Um, so I never, I never really knew the reason why. But as I found out, as I got more experience in the industry, that stories like that aren't that uncommon. Now I think the power has shifted a little bit more towards writers. At the time, I was pretty despondent tried to shake off the disappointment and hide from everybody that I told I was going to be a literary <sighs> sensation and just yeah. get cracking on another book, you know, um, something a little bit more commercial, something with an American protagonist, um, something set in a place that might be a little more familiar t- to the American audience that I was aiming for. Um, but I, I, I got a few chapters in and then I kind of hit a wall. Um, I just couldn't push through. I was thinking, you know, it was the first, you know, when you reach that first sticky point in a book, questioning everything, mm-hmm. questioning my ability as a writer, whether there was any point to doing any of this. And um, I was thinking about giving it all up and I was just casting around, you know, what should I do here? And then I, I, I think I stumbled across some forum where a lot of self-publishers were hanging out and I just started reading some of the posts and seeing these people having a lot of success just from publishing their own books. Um, like in the last couple of months before that, I'd, I'd started hearing about, you know, these first people that um, started getting success from self-publishing, people like Joe Conrath and Amanda Hawking and, and these these first kind of self-publishing superstars about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of them were people who had come from traditional publishing and they had maybe a backlist ready to upload. And obviously they had a bit of experience and, and some storytelling chops and maybe some contacts and and all that kind of thing, which, which you know, most people starting out won't have any of that. Um, mm-hmm. But these people in this forum were all people who had just started a few months ago and they were all posting their sales figures every month. You know, they'd start off, you know, first month making $10, the next month they might make $35, the next month after that, 150 And like six months later, they were starting to pull in $1,000 a month. And I, I was just like, this is amazing. Like this, it's, it seemed possible for the first time I could see an actual path to, to making money out of it. I was still in trouble with the idea of getting an agent and a publisher. Like self-publishing at that time, was very much a plan B for me. And um, mm-hmm. now it's a plan A and I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't take a publishing deal unless there was some kind of obscene money on the table. But um, back then it was definitely a plan B. And so I started off just self-publishing a few short stories just to see 
um, just to learn the ropes, to see if I enjoyed the process of, of being a publisher and of being a marketer of my own work. But also I could keep one foot in the world of traditional publishing because I still th- I, th- I think I still had a couple of agents who were reading the full, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just I, w- I didn't want to close that door by self-publishing the book until I'd heard from them. I never, of course, did actually hear from them. Um, but when I when I started self-publishing, the first thing I noticed right away was that I just got out of that funk that I was in. Like being a querying author is it's it's such a negative place to be, you know, um, especially when mm. you're just getting rejection all the time. Um, it's so very hard to keep summoning up the energy and the positivity that you need to to write when all you're hearing mm-hmm. is no, or your writing's not commercial enough, or it's not good enough, or or you just you're not even getting often enough feedback to work with, you know. And that's just the nature of the business. But it's tough being in that position when you're starting out. But once I started self publishing, mm-hmm. it the dynamic changed completely. Like the internal psychological dynamic changed completely. You know, you're getting people strangers are buying your book they're giving you money they're they're reviewing your book they're emailing you i just like rediscovered the pure joy of writing again i remember writing another st- short story at my kitchen table and i think within two weeks i had that short story i had a cover for it i had it edited formatted uploaded and then, and then it was on sale and so it just seemed like so radically different from the traditional publishing process that you know i was just amazed like at just how different and how positive an experience it was for me personally so I think by the end of that first month, when I got my first sales report from Amazon, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm self-publishing everything from now on. Like, I, I, don't, I don't care what agent is, is reading my book now. I'm just, I'm, I'm going to self-publish it. And I haven't had any interest in, in returning to that path. The, the thing that I was dreaming about so much, you know, I have no interest mm-hmm. in going that direction now. And it, it, it's pretty funny. I think one of the agents that actually rejected me for my historical novel, I, she read one of the short stories that I self-published and she asked me if I wanted to turn it into a YA novel. So I got the opportunity then to send her a rejection letter, which was extremely, <laughs> extremely <laughs> good. Um, and if you ever get a chance as an author to do that, I strongly recommend going for it. It, it, it felt really good. I sure, often hear sure. people talk about the early days of self-publishing as almost like how people talk about like the gold rush, like the first people to discover gold, like they were just like scooping it off the ground. And now it's, you know, so many people have heard there's gold in them hills and they've all rushed. <laughs> and now you really got to, you know, you got to dig for it. And some people go mining and they, they don't come up with anything. Is it totally different 10 years ago to today? It's a constant discussion that we have as self-publishers, you know, whether things have gotten harder, if it's harder to start today. It's changed in positive ways and in negative ways. I think the challenge is different. I don't think it's necessarily harder. I think, you know, the standards are higher these days in terms of reader expectation of, you know, presentation and, and branding. And obviously the marketing side in the last five years particularly has gotten a lot more complicated as Self-publishers and, and publishers get savvier about things like mailing lists and Facebook ads and websites and everything else. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, the market has just swelled so much. The market is just so much bigger than it was in 2011. So even like a, you know, a moderate success in 2020 can, can deliver huge amounts of sales. And also the tools we have for reaching readers are just so much better. Like I was talking about, you know, these authors that I was reading about in forums who were, hitting that kind of success level. And, and back then in 2011, if someone started selling a thousand books a month in total across, you know, whatever they had published, we considered they, they were on the way. That was just, you know, the, the, the kind of watermark everyone had 
or like if they were making a thousand dollars a month or if they're selling a thousand books a month, we would basically consider someone was on the way then. They, they, they'd crossed through to the other side. They were now officially successful. You can take out a BookBub ad, for example, or a BookBub featured deal, and you can sell two or 3,000 books in a day. I've only been um, self-publishing for a year. A thousand a month is definitely on the lower end. You know, most places they have those levels of success. And a thousand seems like a very one of the lower benchmarks that people are aiming for. Yeah. And, and just to give an idea to anyone who's not aware like of how lucrative that can potentially be, you know, we're often selling our books for now is is a very common price point for self-publishers. And we're making basically $3.5 per sale. So if you're selling 1,000 e-books, that's starting to become like a real income. Mindy and I were just at the same time as you were entering publishing is approximately the same time that Mindy and I were. But on the traditional side, I started writing seriously in 2007 and I queried two books that we're not successful. And then my third book, I found an agent in um, 2011, and I was published in 2013. I'm still hybrid. I'm trying to keep a foot in both worlds. It's interesting because when you're talking about how self-publishing was seen then, I totally know because with those two first failed books, I was like, should I self-publish these? Or I was looking, you know, there were a lot of smaller online publishers. It was definitely the feeling then that like you want to be traditional. That is definitely the A choice. And I definitely feel like that has changed. I know tons of authors who were traditionally published and now are indie authors and that is their income. It's a more reliable income, frankly. You have more control over it, which, you know, especially in in times like we're probably facing right now of, of economic turmoil. I think it's great. Mm-hmm. Well, for me personally, I like the idea of being able to control my career. And if sales dip or if something happens that I have more direct influence over that rather than leaving it in the hands of somebody else. Well, and also too, just in traditional publishing, I've been fortunate. I've worked with the same editor for six books now, but turnover is crazy. So it's like you generally start to develop a working relationship, a good working relationship with an editor and things are going awesome. And then they move houses and that's just the way it is. They just, that's how it works. There's so much turnover and so much traveling in between publishing houses. I think I've had five or six different publicists in seven, eight years. And as income, yes. I mean, obviously that's always a pot shot and you have no control over things and you can see opportunities. Like for example, I'll have a book that is post-apocalyptic and it deals with a world with very little water to drink, but the setting is very much like isolation and things like that. And sales really did take off on that book again here in the quarantine. Luckily enough, they had already settled it to be for a dollar ninety nine during a certain time period, and it happened to coincide with the quarantine, so that was great and it helped. But it's like I couldn't put dollars toward marketing that. Like I could use my social media, I could do things like that. I could, you know, try to get a book bug, but I don't have the infrastructure that really successful indie has. You're just so much more nimble on your feet. You can react immediately to trends and what's going on in the market. I love being traditionally published. I get a lot of perks from that. But I see those pros for uh, self-publishing and indie publishing. 
being able to react to events very quickly is is such a boon. I remember one publisher at a conference talking about, you know, things that can happen in a writer's career that aren't their fault, but they often end up carrying the can for them. Like I think she was talking mm-hmm. about some big debut that she was launching. And I think it came out the same weekend as as one of the recent royal weddings. So all yeah. that PR they'd lined up, all that stuff that's really important for a traditionally published book, all that stuff got axed so they could do a 12-page special on on Will and Kate or or whichever one of them it was that that weekend. Um and that's out of your control, but when you know when the publisher maybe then is looking to offer you a contract, a new contract when you're looking when your agent is trying to get you a new deal a few years later, there's no asterisks be, beside those disappointing sales numbers right. saying not no, the author's right. fault. Honestly, I would have been a bad psychological fit for traditional publishing because I would not have been able to handle a situation like that. I would have been burning down the house, burning bridges probably in all directions. So <laughs> I think it worked out better for both sides that I ended up <laughs> self-publishing rather than traditionally publishing, you know? Well, and it's interesting too, you mentioned, um, you know, the things you can't control. I'm lucky I have a long enough tail that the epidemic is not going to ruin me. But debut authors that had a book come out, you know, in March or in April and probably here rolling into May, they're screwed. Like their royalty statements are going to be printed in red ink. And so they started trying to delay releases if it was a big book, if it was something that people they'd sunk a lot of money into. But that's not going to happen across the board for everyone. A lot of people's careers are just going to nosedive right out of the gate because of something that has nothing to do with their ability or talent. It's just bad luck. Yeah, and unfortunately, the the writer usually ends up footing the bill for whatever random event has happened, and that's just the structural nature of the business. Um, And, you know, when I look at the way the economy might be going globally, I've always heard it said that books are a little bit recession-proof in that, you know, people might, I know these aren't normal circumstances we have now, but normally in a recession, Mm -hmm. um, people might tighten their belts by, you know, not going out to for a meal or not going to the theater or to, to a movie and then just read a book instead. But I think mm-hmm. that, that, that phrase was probably coined in the period before the $35 hardback um, competing with the $9 Netflix subscription. And I think, you know, mm. sometimes we view the world of books as kind of separate and distinct, whereas really our, our customers, our readers are people who could conceivably spend their leisure time and their disposable income on anything. And I think, you know, if you are, traditionally published and you're, you're, you're leading out with a expensive hardback and in the climate that's to come, it's, it's going to be pretty tough for you. And the advantages of being self-published is of course I get to control all, all sorts of things like price. So I was just looking ahead at a, a couple of releases that I have coming up myself and I was trying to decide on a pricing strategy and a marketing strategy for the launch. And I ended up choosing a, a strategy which would be more aggressive than I would usually do at a launch, a cheaper pricing structure, purely because I'm looking ahead and, and, seeing that people probably will have a little bit less disposable income. So I, I, I want to plan around that. And I have the ability to do that, you know, when I'm probably three or four weeks away from launch, that I can change mm-hmm. the plan completely, whereas mm-hmm. a, a publisher simply wouldn't be able to do that. Make your pages look professional with vellum. Margins, headers, page numbering, font, line spacing, all happen automatically with every book you create. Generate eBooks for Kindle, Apple Books, Kobo, and others, or deliver a beautiful print book to your readers. Visit trivellum.com forward slash pants 
to learn more. Vellum. Create beautiful books. So speaking of your newsletter, you have a fantastic newsletter. I think I first came to subscribe to your newsletter because I was on Facebook in a indie author group. And I think it was when the whole um, MailChimp went down, thing went down and um, someone posted a link to your newsletter and to, I think, your blog. And it was so great. and It was so informative and helpful. And so that's, I think, when I was like, oh, I have to sign up and get this newsletter. I'm missing out. Preach the gospel of the newsletter and speak about why it's so important and what it's done for you. I know in the indie world, newsletter is like the first thing every person says is like the importance of it. And I feel like in the traditional world, it's kind of seen as like just another tool in the toolbox. I think it's lumped in with like Twitter and Facebook. Like if you like it, do it. I think that's undercutting its importance. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it's a huge mistake not to prioritize your newsletter. Like if you compare a traditionally published author to to the typical self-published author, we were talking about the lack of control. You have less of those levers that you can pull to generate book sales for yourself. There's just simply less you can do because you don't control pricing. It doesn't make a lot of sense to spend money on Facebook ads and that kind of thing, so, which means you really need to focus more on the things that you do control. And, you know, mailing list is is something that anybody can set up and and every author really should have one and not just have one but really be um trying to maximize the benefits from from that strategy and you know we we're talking about uncertain times and we don't know how the industry is going to look in a year like will barnes and noble still exist how many bookstores will there be you know all these questions are circulating and no one knows the answer but the best insurance policy whether you're concerned about barnes and noble going out of business whether you're concerned about amazon or you're concerned about your own publisher merging losing your editor whatever it is doesn't matter the best insurance policy you have against anything like that happening in the future is to have your own mailing list and have as many readers as possible as many of your own readers as possible not just random people but actual people in your target market of your who actually read your niche not your friends and family actual core friends of your genre as many of those people that you can get as possible on your mailing list, the better it will be. And the more insurance you will have against any turmoil in the industry. I think a lot of people know that and they mm-hmm. might have a list, but they might know what to do with it. Or they might realize the benefits that you can get from being a bit more proactive with your strategy. And I get mm-hmm. because like when I started out self-publishing, there's, there's so many things you have to wrap your head around. You know, websites, mm-hmm. marketing, publishing, covers, all that stuff. And I didn't pay a huge amount of attention to my mailing list. I I made a number of key mistakes and hopefully other people can learn from my experience. I basically did most things wrong. I did the, the good part of actually having a list and, and having kind of a, a bit of text at the back of every book saying, you know, if you want to if you want to read more, if you want to get an email when the next book is out, sign up here. And I, that was actually my first mistake. I decided that I didn't want to bother people, that people had we're getting too many emails anyway um, that I'll only email them when I have a new release. And I think this is the kind of default position for, for most writers. They don't know what to say mm-hmm. anyway and they don't want to bother people and they're trying to be considerate and they decide to only email people when they have a new release. And this is a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. And especially if you're a slower writer and I'm, I'm a slower writer, I'm not one of these um, self-publishing speed demons. So if you're a slower writer and you know, you're only emailing people when you have a new book, the chances are that they will have forgotten who you are or, you know, how much they enjoyed your book when they get your email. And what you will gradually see over a period of time, as I saw myself over a period of, you know, eight years or whatever, 
however long I was doing this the wrong way. Um, you see gradually falling engagement on those emails. You know, less people replying saying, oh, you're well done. I'm excited to read the book. Less people opening the email, less people clicking on it, less people buying the book. This has a cumulative effect on your own psyche, of course, where you're starting to think that, you know, people are just not enjoying your books as much as they used to. Maybe you've, you've lost that kind of X factor in your in your prose. Or, and I remember I released a book in, uh, it was the last historical novel I released, which is a few years ago now, 2016. And it was the best thing, at the time, it was the best thing that I'd written by far. I thought I felt like my storytelling had taken a big step forward with this book. And I, I said at the email, and I was telling my partner, within half an hour, I said, this launch is a bust. And she said, oh, no, it's far too early, don't you? She thought I was just having launch jitters or something. But I knew straight away, just by the open rate on the email, that this launch was going to be a bad one. And I, I knew wow. within half, half an hour, because I could see that people just weren't opening the email. Either it wasn't getting to their inboxes, because mm-hmm. I didn't have very high engagement. I didn't have a lot of contact with these people in the last two years or whatever, or it was going to spam or they were seeing it and just ignoring it. Um, they were like, who the hell is this? What is this junk? Yeah. Because they, they didn't remember name, probably, I'm sure. We like to think everyone on our list is eagerly awaiting our next book, but they might have signed up and, and you know, they might have enjoyed your book, signed up, hoping to you know hear when the next one is out and then just forgotten about you. Like, I can't remember, like, we, especially heavy reader reads, you know, um, a book every three or four days or something like there's no, no possible mm-hmm. way they'll remember all the authors they've enjoyed or all the lists they've signed up to or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got to, you've got to maintain some kind of connection there. And I remember I, I read this book called newsletter ninja by Tammy Lebrecht, which is the best book out there on email. And if anyone wants to get better on email, I, I strongly recommend reading it. Anyway, I read this book and actually it was a course I did by her that she then turned into a book. And I realized I was doing everything wrong. And I decided, you know, for once, I'm not going to just argue with somebody and, and question everything I'm being told to do. I'm just going to zip it and do everything she's <laughs> telling me to do, because she sounds like she knows a lot more about this than I do. Um, I don't get too many of those moments in life, but thankfully I had one at this particular moment. So I said, OK, I'm going to start doing a regular email. I decided I'll do it first for my nonfiction audience and then I'll roll it out to fiction. And so I did that. I, I, I started with my nonfiction audience. And I started doing a weekly newsletter, which before anyone has a panic attack, I don't recommend doing that level of frequency for fiction. You don't need to. Monthly is fine. Um, but for this particular audience, it, it suited me and suited them to do a weekly email. And it was a, it's a weekly email on mostly on, on marketing. Um, and once I started doing that, like it, it was amazing the difference. Um, firstly, I thought I was going to lose a lot of my list because I'd essentially broken the promise I'd made during sign up saying, I'll only bother you with a new release. Everyone was delighted to hear more regularly, or most people were. You lose a few, but you know the, mm-hmm. the amount that you gain is just so much greater. I started getting a lot more um, just direct personal emails in response to it. So I started having two-way conversations, which is which is good for the the algorithms that are looking at you know whether you're a spammer or not. But it's also good for you psychologically because you actually feel like you know there's a point to writing these emails. And I noticed the tone in my emails totally changed. Whereas before I was almost apologetic, you know, this is a launch email. It should be, it should be, it should be hype. You know, uh, you should be you excited going, you know, because people respond to passion. It should be you going, Hey, I've got a new book. It's great. You're going to love it. The characters are amazing. And instead it's kind of like, well, you know, if you're not too busy, um, you could click this link, and maybe, <laughs> maybe buy this book. And of course you know, that has an effect on, on whether that email converts. If you're not excited about the book, the readers like, why, why should a reader be excited about it? So yeah, yeah, once I started doing this and just being a bit more professional and proactive about the whole email thing, it just took off. Like, like 
the the signups went crazy and then just you know the responses to it as well the opens the clicks the purchases and for me just as a writer personally and uh, it had a transformative effect akin to when i first started self-publishing i think i'd gotten into a bit of a rut in my career um for a variety of reasons and this really kind of signaled a kind of a rebirth and it's only i've only started rolling because i was focusing on the non-fiction side of my business for about 18 months and then i started switching back to fiction because i was rebooting mm-hmm. everything and i started rolling this process out in i think it was january for my historical fiction just doing it monthly there's a few bumps in the road as i kind of adjusted to you know talking pe- to people in a, in a in a very different way when talking about stories from history and things like that but once i once i started getting it nailed down the same thing started happening signups have started increasing and the response when i do talk about my own books which isn't i should note that it's not something that i do in every email usually i'm talking about other people's books or other stories from history that aren't directly related to the worlds that i'm writing in um, and then every so often i will mention oh i've got a book or i've got a, a freebie right now i've got a sale uh, or can you review this book and then the response is amazing I think that's so important what you're talking about. You have the list and you're emailing more frequently, but also your content is really, really good. You have information that is very current and you put personality into your emails. That's something that I actually had a big thing with Mindy about um, (laughs) a year ago. And I was like, Mindy, your emails are just like, Here's my new book that just came out. Here's some other books you might like. See ya. And I was like, Mindy, you have to like, I was like, you're funny. Like we've done tons of panels together and Mindy always kills and people love her and they think she's so funny. And then they look for her books and they're like, these books are not funny. But yeah, there's always a she, little bit of a letdown when they realize <laughs> that I'm actually just like kind of a monster. But yeah. <laughs> but you give good panel. And I was like, why don't do. you put some of that personality into your email? And she was like, ah, I don't want to do that. People don't want that. And I was like, yes, people want to feel like I'm opening this email and you, you know, it starts to feel like an email from a friend. Oh, what are they up to? And you always put David at the end of yours, like what you're listening to. And I always think that's so fun. Kate actually told me to read Tammy Lebrecht's book, The Newsletter Ninja, which I completely endorse as well. And I did the same thing. I was underlining passages. I was highlighting stuff step by step, did everything that she said to do. And my newsletter, like it exploded. I think my open rate had been like 5% and my click had been like at one. And now my open rate is like 40 and my click is usually around 11%. That's great. That's great improvement. Yeah. Do you feel better now about writing an email? Oh yeah. Before it was such a chore and I was doing exactly what you said. And I would send out an email when I had a new book and it was basically just me asking for their money, you know, once a year. The disenrollment rate was so high because like you said, they didn't remember me. They didn't know who I was or they would think that I was spamming them. I would get emails be like, I didn't sign up for this because they didn't remember because they signed up 11 months ago. So, I mean, that's another reason to keep going out there once a month. I want to circle back then and talk about the fact that your newsletter is such a touchstone for lots and lots of people in the indie world. How did you make this transition to becoming an authority? The, the first thing you have to understand me is that I'm 99% powered by spite. So, <laughs> and it, it's a renewable resource as well. So it, it, it's Absolutely. a pretty good choice. 
I never had planned to get into writing nonfiction and writing about publishing and marketing and all that. When I started blogging about all the steps I was doing in self-publishing as I was doing them, it was all down to a forum argument I had somewhere. It was back in 2011. I'm sure you guys remember there was all these wars between traditionally published authors and self-published authors, mm-hmm. about which was the best path. And everyone was cheering for their team. And I think it was someone was telling me that I was, I was going to fail and the only people that can self-publish are people who come from traditional publishing with all that experience and knowledge and backlist and everything else. And I said, well, I'm going to give it a go because all these other people are doing it. So, you know, why can't I give it a shot? So I said, you know, I'll, I'll blog every step of the way so you can see if I fail or not. And I was actually posting my, my sales reports. I stopped doing it after about a year, I think. But I was posting all my sales reports every month, even when the first one was like $15 or something. And just saying what I did every month to get those sales. And also then blogging um, about, you know, how to find a cover designer. Because back then, that's the other difference from today. Back then, there was there was no, I don't think there was a single guide to self-publishing out there. Not, not, not for the digitally focused self-publisher. It was for the older kind of people who would be going towards vanity presses or offset printing and all that. So, yeah, we had to kind of create all these resources ourselves and figure everything out ourselves at the start. Like, what's the best way to, you know, format an ebook and all that kind of thing. So I was sharing all this stuff as we were all figuring it out. And it was just towards the end of that process, one of the people who started reading my blog asked me if I could put all the posts together in a PDF so he could print it out and then follow it along as he was doing it himself. So I said, sure, no problem. And as I started assembling that, I realized that I was, I'd accidentally fallen into writing a book. And I said, well, I could Mm. write a guide to self-publishing, even though I've only sold 150 books and I've been doing this for about 10 seconds I'm sure I'm perfectly qualified. And, and, that's how it, <laughs> and that's how it started. Um, purely fell into it backwards. And to be honest, there was a lot of luck involved. I was in the right place at the right time. You know, some people like to hear from an expert with loads of experience on how to do something. And then some people find it more reassuring to almost have a beginner, you know, teaching the class, someone who's one step ahead of them, because sometimes they can speak to them. They can relate to them a bit more. Sometimes when yeah. you have a lot of knowledge on a subject, it can be difficult to explain it to a, a pure beginner. You almost know too much, you know. And I definitely didn't have that a problem in 2011 of knowing too much. <laughs> so I was perfectly positioned to, to play that role. And it was also the summer that self-publishers started hitting the charts for the first time. It just, I was just in the right place at the right time, basically. I mean, to keep a blog going for this long and to grow it into an audience, I mean, like, Yes, there's something about being in the right place at the right time, but you've done all the right things and kept it going. You are obviously no longer a beginner. You are now in that position where you maybe have too much knowledge, but you still have a passion for helping others and explaining you know, various facets of the business and helping people along. A lot of my income comes from other authors recommending my books to, to authors who are starting out, you know, and I've never lost sight of the fact that my whole career basically has been built on other people helping me. Like I got a lot of breaks at the start from other authors, either, you know, giving me advice or featuring me on their blogs or like when I released that first edition of my guide to self-publishing, I think I realized my biggest weakness was that, you know, nobody knew who I was. I hadn't sold loads of books. Mm-hmm. So I decided to kind of counterbalance that by getting a lot of experienced, successful self-publishers, names that people might recognize, to contribute to the book. And the amazing thing was, right, I, I think I made a list of like 35 authors. And I fully expected never to hear back from like, you know, half or three quarters of them. And I was thinking if I get five or six or seven of these guys to agree, that'll be a win. 
And I think 32 of them agreed to contribute to the book. How are we going to fit all these in now? I had to kind of restructure the, <laughs> the, 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 the book a little bit because I wasn't expecting to get that many people to say yes. This might have changed a little now as things get a bit more, bit bigger and a bit more kind of competitive between self-publishers for various reasons. But certainly at the start, there was a, a very strong feeling of community, possibly reinforced by that kind of us versus them dynamic with traditional publishing. But definitely there, within self-publishing itself, that dynamic was 100% positive. And it was all about lifting each other up. And, you know, we had a, a big enemy, so to speak, that we could all focus on and to bind us kind of together. And we all helped mm-hmm. each other. There was never a sense of, you get a little bit now, of like pulling the ladder up afterwards. There was always a sense of reaching back and helping the next people come up. Some of that is down to the, the structural differences with traditional publishing and self-publishing. It's not because we're nicer people or anything, but I think in <laughs> traditional publishing, sometimes you're competing with your your peers for limited slots. Like an agent might only take on a couple of authors a year. There's only so many mm-hmm. books a bookstore can put in the in the window. There's only so many books that's going to get the royal treatment from, from a publisher. So you are in a sense kind of competing. You're competing for grants. Maybe you're competing for teaching slots. There's a lot of that. And there's very little of that, or at least there was, it's changed a little bit. And there was very little of that in self-publishing. And we realized early on that, let's say I find somebody else who also writes historical fiction set in Latin America. I'm, I don't think competitor straight away. I think that's, that's a, a partner in crime. That's somebody mm-hmm. we can pool our audiences. We can do newsletter swaps. Maybe we can do a box set. And maybe I can target him with my Amazon ads. You know, we, don't, we just see possibilities when we see someone else writing in our space. I definitely find that in the indie world, people are very willing to share information, very open with numbers, which is shocking because in the traditional world, it is like you don't talk numbers unless you're like at an event and you're in the bar. It's not something you would ever post like in a public forum and say, oh, yeah, my advance was this. And it's constantly done everywhere. People are so open and it's not bragging. It's meant to be like, you know, this is what I did. You can do it too. It's, it's interesting yeah, though it's- to to kind of ask the question of who does that who does that help and who does it hurt? You know, I think we've all worked in offices where there was definitely an atmosphere of nobody discusses what they're earning. And then ones where it was more open. And it, it certainly serves the paymaster's interest to keep everyone oh, in the yeah. dark about what everyone else is earning. Whereas transparency, you know, that empowers authors. So maybe that's not, that's why it's not encouraged so much. Publishing is a very small world, the traditional publishing world. I think all publishing, you know, eventually everyone bumps into everybody else. I think there's this fear that it'll get back to your publisher or whoever, and you'll be seen as, you know, the troublemaker. No, I remember one of the things that my very first editor said to me, like on our call, on our first phone call, our meet and greet. She was like, yeah, don't talk about money. Don't tell other people how much you got paid and, you know, don't talk about money. And I was just like, okay, you know, that's whatever you say. And now um, I do now just because I do think that it's helpful for a lot of people. And the other thing is I, in, in the YA world, in the traditional publishing world, my name is pretty well known. You have the opposite experience where people think I'm a bigger deal than I actually am. People recognize my name within the industry. In everyday homes, I'm not a common name. So people think in the industry that I have greater sales or that I'm a bigger deal than I actually am. And so it's kind of funny when I do share numbers and they're just like, oh, they're sometimes surprised. And I'm like, no, I, I am not 
as uh, great as it may seem. <laughs> yeah, I think um, it's probably getting more similar now in, in self-publishing. I think in traditional publishing, like the power curve is often so extreme, like that there's, you know, there's there's a thin slice at the top that are earning like eye-boggling numbers. And then, you know, that falls away quite quickly. And I think especially mm-hmm. with the changes over the last 10 years with the mid-list getting hollowed out quite a bit. That's probably mm-hmm. accelerated. Self-publishing is probably trending that way to a certain extent as well, which is probably inevitable. So if you were going to give an indie publisher, a self-publishing author that was just starting out, mm-hmm. if you were going to give them one piece of advice, what would you what would you tell them to do? Think very deeply about your ideal reader. Um, I think, you know, most people will be familiar with the concept from Stephen King's on writing where he talks mm-hmm. about his wife, Tabitha, as his ideal reader um, and the person that they're writing for. And I think that's a very useful concept for the creative side. But I think it's also very useful for the publishing and marketing side of the business. One of the biggest mistakes that new authors make when they're starting out is that they want to tell everybody about their book. It's perfectly natural inclination. And usually we have friends or family or colleagues that want to support us by buying our book. And they don't realize how that can actually hurt them then what you really want to do is solely focus your attention, your marketing on core readers in your genre. Like so much of discovery and visibility and sales is now powered by algorithms. If you look at how Amazon works, it's always trying to figure out what kind of book you have and who it should recommend it to. Like the whole Mm -hmm. Amazon system is built around trying to recommend everyone the products that they're most likely to purchase, not the ones Mm -hmm. that make Amazon the most profit or the ones that Amazon has the best relationship with. Like Amazon will happily recommend a 99 cent book over a 1999 book, even Mm -hmm. though it makes them way less money, they'll happily do that to build up that kind of user trust, that relationship so that people actually like the recommendations they get from Amazon. But if you start off getting Bob from accounting and your, your uncle and all these other people who don't read, let's say you're publishing like a sweet romance and they don't read that kind of book. And, but those kind of people are buying your book at the start you're going to give Amazon a very, very muddled idea of who your true reader is. And they will start Mm. recommending your book to all the wrong people. So people can Mm. make a mistake like this right at the start of their career, not realizing, you know, what they have done. They kind of self-sabotage just by, you know, giving into the natural inclination to shout from the rooftops that you've got a new book. Now, I don't think, you know, people should hide the fact necessarily that they've written a book, but at the very start, those first 50 sales, it's crucial that they go to core readers in your genre so that Amazon, because that those first 50 sales are, you know, what Amazon needs before it starts putting those also bots on your book. I'm sure you've seen them on a, mm. on a books page. Mm-hmm. It says something like customers who bought this also bought that. We call those also bots. Those first 50 sales are when Amazon's getting the first read of what kind of book you have, you know, because it, it won't see the, the, the couple clenching on the cover or the font choice that you've used. It's going to be looking at the metadata but it's also going to be looking at who's who's buying the book because that to Amazon should be a, an indication of what kind of person they should be recommending it to. So if all the wrong people are buying it, then it's going to start recommending your book to all the wrong people. And this is something, nice. I've, a, a mistake I've actually made personally myself when I try to try to market some of my historical fiction to my writer audience. And I did that right at the launch and Amazon got the, all the wrong idea of who the audience for that historical novel was and started recommending mm. it to people who wanted how-to books on, on writing and marketing. That launch was a disaster. So try and focus your marketing attention on your ideal reader exclusively, especially at the very start. And then, you know, you can tell your friends and family and colleagues maybe after a month or something that you have a book out. But at the start, don't try and lean on that network. Just try and focus on 
core readers in your genre? I've noticed um, in the last, I don't know, maybe two to three weeks, maybe month that when I look at my books on Amazon, my indie books, two first row of books that are not advertised books, instead of showing me, you know, readers who also bought, it's saying, here are some books that you may also like. And it's based on my browsing. I know I looked at those books. (laughs) Like, Don't show them to me again. (laughs) I want to see my also bots. So what are they doing? So Amazon plays with that bit of real estate because it's incredibly valuable real estate and it plays with it all the time. It's always doing experiments. Sometimes it it slides in another row of ads there and you get this horrific double row of ads on your book page. It's tried various different things in that slot and and it has done for as long as I can remember. There's just more public awareness or at least among authors um, when Amazon makes those changes these days, because people are starting to understand how important also bots are in the whole kind of Amazon system. Firstly, don't panic because it probably won't stick. It never does, whatever change they make there. And the mm-hmm. second reason not to panic is this is only a visual representation of the underlying system. Um, even if those also bots disappear from your page forever, it doesn't change their impact on the whole recommendation engine, as I like to call it. It'd be equivalent to a signpost pointing towards a a town disappearing. Now, it might be harder. It might be a little harder for people to find the town, but the town itself hasn't disappeared. So there's no real reason to panic. You know, people will get there eventually. I wouldn't panic too much about changes on on your product page itself. The underlying system is what is important. And that system is still working away in the background, whether those also bots are on your page or not. That's just a visual representation to you. It doesn't actually affect the recommendations that are going out to customers. It doesn't affect the millions of emails that Amazon's sending out with targeted recommendations to readers every day. It doesn't change the millions of recommendations they make on the website that are personalized for each individual reader every day. So that system isn't going away. There's no reason to worry about that. That's great advice because I, yeah, I would just think like, oh, that's gone. So that's not a tool in your box anymore, but it is. I feel like anytime Amazon does anything, there's always a lot of like chatter and discussion about it on all the different indie groups. And like you said, indie authors are definitely more sensitive and more aware of all of those changes. In a way, like we were talking about how traditional authors, our overlords are, you know, the big five and our publishers and stuff. And there's that power differential, but a little bit that exists with Amazon because Amazon is just huge and so many people all their income is in amazon all my indie books are in kindle unlimited because that's where we make most of our money i definitely do sometimes feel at the mercy of amazon yeah well they have so much of the ebook market in particular not just in the u.s but like i think u.s they they're estimated to have what 70 75 percent i don't think anyone has a very clear read on that okay it's even greater it's 90 percent or more so oh, wow. you know like it is very important. Like if anything happens on Amazon, it has, you know, a real and noticeable effect on the livelihoods of, of lots and lots of authors, self-publishers in particular. I think everybody wants a healthy book sector with lots and lots of competitors. But the other side of that is that Amazon has always given us a more level playing field. So that's why in that sense, we've always had a kind of more positive disposition towards Amazon. There was always a feeling. Yeah. Now, some of the other retailers might dispute this and fair enough. But the feeling among self-publishers, and this is something I would agree with, is that Amazon has always made it easier for us to bootstrap our way to success. Like it always felt like a lot of the 
prime spots on the other retailers were being kept for, you know, Random House or Penguin or HarperCollins. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. the front tables in Amazon, it feels like everyone has a, uh, has a shot of getting there and that, you know, nobody is particularly favored. Good luck picking the bones out of that. It's, it, we have a lot of kind of conflicted opinion, opinions about the whole thing. And I think that's one of the reasons I do like keeping having that hybrid thing. It just makes me feel a little more able to pivot. So I don't feel like I'm totally beholden to publishers. I don't feel like I'm totally beholden to Amazon. I definitely still feel like I could be screwed at any minute because I do make my <laughs> living making words. Well, one thing that has, gives me more confidence today about, you know, some massive structural shock coming and it might not just be virus related or economy related. There's been a lot of noise about breaking Amazon up. and But mm-hmm. I feel a lot personally, a lot more confident about weathering a storm like that now because I have a much larger mailing list. So I feel like, okay, if Amazon went down tomorrow or stopped being an effective place for me to sell books, that would hurt. But I feel like I could put something together quicker or, or recover faster because I have a greater control of my platform. I have so many more of my readers on my mailing list or liking my Facebook page or whatever. And the like the unique advantage of email as opposed to having lots of Twitter followers or Facebook likes or whatever else is that you 100% control that platform. Like with Facebook, you know, people are complaining that there's less organic reach. And with Twitter, mm-hmm. it's a crap crapshoot over, you know, whether anyone ever sees your tweet or not, it seems. And you don't even mm-hmm. really have the option there of dropping some cash and making sure that everybody see it. It doesn't really work so well. With email, if something happens, I can just take my list and, and walk like I did with MailChimp when they jacked up their prices and changed their terms. I was just able to pull my list because I own it and walk. And you can't do that with Facebook. I can't, you know, if Facebook suddenly, you know, double the price of their advertising or, or whatever, do something that messes with my business. I can't just take all my likes and leave. I can't download them, you know, and bring them with right. me to a new social network. They don't allow you to do that because I don't control that list. I don't control that territory, whereas I do with my mailing list. And, and that's very empowering. Skylar Finch can't stand Truman Alexander. So when her phone starts sending her notifications from the future, and it looks like she's with Truman, as in romantically, she goes on a quest to fix it. But changing the future means complicating the present. In Now and When, a romantic dramedy with a time travel twist by Sarah Bennett Wheeler. Finding your way means accepting that life doesn't come with a roadmap and that people, like glitchy phones, are full of surprises. Now and When is available now. I wanted to ask one other thing. I can't remember if it was an email or a blog post of yours that I came across a while ago, but I thought it was really interesting because you talked about going viral, pros and cons of that, what you can do with that, which it seemed like your takeaway was not much. But our last guest that we had, we talked about going viral in a bad way when you get at the bottom of one of those Twitter pylons. I've never gone viral. I've never been the person who everyone on Twitter decides to scream at. I actually don't really want either of those because it terrifies me a little bit. What are your thoughts on going viral or on the Twitter pylons? What I was trying to address in that post is that, you know, going viral is something that people seem to want to engineer. And there's obviously mm-hmm. negative effects to going viral as as your last guest would have would have covered conclusively. But my, my take on it was a little bit different in that I think the danger in trying to engineer something like that um, is that you'll start doing all the wrong things, right? 
So, mm-hmm. for example, I had to build up a brand new Facebook page in January for my because I republished all my historical fiction under a, a slightly tweaked version of my name just to separate everything out. I decided to start a, a fresh Facebook page just for historical fiction readers that wouldn't have my author audience mixed in and just so I mm-hmm. could put out tailored content just for that channel specifically. Now, if you want to build up a Facebook page quickly or get more likes or comments or shares, the easiest way to do that is to post pictures of cats or dogs or or share memes. <laughs> and, and it's easy to fall into that trap because, you know, we're trying to talk about our books. We're trying to talk about, you know, the, the subject matter around the books, the research, other books we like. And those posts might get a few likes, a few comments, a few shares. And then you put up a puppy and things go wild, right? You know, you put up a, <laughs> yes. a, a picture of your daughter or, or something like that, which is of general interest. And it's really easy for lots of people to like that photo. And then it's really easy for you to start thinking, well, I should do more content like that. But then what mm-hmm. kind of audience are you building up? You're building up an audience of people who like puppies and, and cute photos of, of children or whatever else. You're not building up an audience of people who are rabid fans of, of the kind of books that you write. And that's what you've got to focus on. Not, not this number chasing, not, you know, as much going viral as much as possible. You just want to, you want a narrow beam of content. And if it's turning off most people, that's great. Cause that means you're actually really zeroing in on the little, little niche that you want to target. And these days mm. the market is so big that um, you really need to drill down to the people who respond most to your work and just exclusively target them. And in, on your social channels and in your emails, exclusively putting out the kind of content that these, these kind of people will like. You know, not the kind of content mm-hmm. that everyone likes, the kind of people just these people like. And if, if, if most people don't enjoy it, that's fine. That's actually good for you because you don't want passengers on your email list. You don't because you'll end up paying for them and it'll affect your open rates. And when you have lots of people not opening your emails, it even starts to affect the deliverability of your emails. So even the people who do want to get your emails might start not receiving them. And it's the same on Facebook. Like a lot of people talk about how organic reach has been reduced dramatically. And I think it's been reduced, but I don't think it's that dramatic. Like because I now have such a narrow beam of content on both my Facebook pages and I don't make, you know, cross the streams at all, I sometimes see mm-hmm. engagement rates of 25% or 30% still. When people say that's been impossible for five years, Maybe if it is if you built up likes by you know posting memes all the time, but if you keep your content mm-hmm. to that narrow beam of content, then you're going to build up an audience which is really really responsive to the kind of content you're putting out. Maybe it's harder work, maybe it's a slower build, but it's ultimately I think the, the best way to handle it. Yeah, I've seen tweets that go viral, and usually below it, the person will say something like oh, this tweet really blew up. Buy my book. Once your tweet goes viral, you're supposed to like follow it up with a sales pitch. But I wonder how many people even click on that sales pitch link because I never do. I'm always like, oh, good for you. And then I'm mm-hmm. like, funny tweet, moving on. I've never had something go like, you know, properly viral in, in, in that sense. But I've, I've had like kind of mini, mini viral sensations, if you like. Like I remember there was something during that, uh, terribly tiresome Amazon Hachette dispute a few years ago. And I wrote an article on it and I think Stephen Fry tweeted it and it got like 40,000 pe- people in the space of an hour coming to my website, wow. which, which thankfully didn't crash. But that kind of drive-by traffic, and I think it's the same with all viral traffic, it doesn't stick around. They don't subscribe to your blog. They don't check out your books. They don't buy. So chasing that traffic is really, really pointless. And it's actually self-harming if it means that you're putting out content, which isn't actually going to help you build a targeted audience of buyers of you for your work. 
don't cast a wide net. Cast a small, finely knit net. <laughs> yeah, like Barbie trying to catch a butterfly or something. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much I really appreciate all of your time oh well, thanks yes. for inviting me Writer Writer Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis music by Jack Corbel. don't forget to check out the blog for additional interviews, writing advice and publication tips at writerwriterpantsonfire.com If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar.